0: I ran in high school. I was a runner, all right? And so I ran for a pretty competitive team. And my senior year, I had a pretty decent year, all right? And so... uh at winter track, so, uh, you would run indoors and we traveled to all these different universities. Um, I had probably the best meet that I'd ever had in my whole entire running career. And it happened at one of the universities that I really, really wanted to go to college at. All right. And so at this, uh, particular track meet, I, I set all my PRs and I win uh, a number of different races and it's right there before the coach of this track of the track team at that school. And so, um, Immediately after this track meet, uh, you get just kind of what every like, student athlete wants, and I got a scholarship offer to go run at this school, all right? And so uh, here's essentially what a scholarship is, right? A scholarship is essentially a promise, right? And so a promise that, hey, you come run for our school, and then we'll pay for your tuition. Or in my case, it was just part of tuition because I wasn't good enough to get a full tuition, right? And so um, I, I get this scholarship, and I get it in the mail, I'm like, Naturally, I'm just really excited, right? I feel like I've arrived. I've gotten a scholarship offer to go run in a, the, the college that I would love to go visit and be a, like a student at. And so um, at the height of all of this, all right, so track season keeps going on. And here's what happens. I got that offer, and look, y'all, I never heard from the coach again. <laughs> I never heard from the coach again. So look, um, what really... Is foundational at like a, at a promise is this idea of trust, right? Like you need to have trust in order for this offer, this promise to come to fruition. And whenever I didn't hear from this coach again, what did it make that scholarship offer? It made an empty promise, didn't it? Like trust was so essential to this scholarship offer, but I never heard from the coach again. And so there was zero trust that if I showed up at this university, that I would actually get what was promised to me in that letter. All right. And so look, as we're in Genesis 15, we just read it on the screen. We're coming back and we're revisiting this promise that God has made to Abram that we looked at in Genesis chapter 12. So just a reminder, here's the promise. God calls Abram to literally uproot his whole life and to go. And in this uprootedness, as he goes, he makes a promise to Abram that he's going to give him a land. So there's promised land that he's going to give him. He doesn't know where he's going, but God's going to give him some particular land. He's also going to get a great name. He's going to get this great reputation amongst all of the nations that surround him. And God's going to give him a lot of possessions, materials. He's going to be rich, right? And on top of all this, God's going to give him a great nation, and this is really perplexing because Abram is old, his wife is barren, but God makes him this promise. He's going to give him all of these big promises. And so what we see here in our passage tonight is we're revisiting this whole idea of God's promise, all right? And just as What was central at my scholarship offer that ended up being an empty promise was the idea of trust is also the thing that we see that's at the core of this promise that God gives to Abram. Trust is the central piece to God's promise that he gives to Abram. And so here's like the angle that I want to come at tonight. I just want to look at this Genesis 15, God's promise. I want to look at it from a couple of angles. So the first angle I want to look at is Abram's trust, all right? We see this in verses 1 through 6. So I want to look at the lens of Abram's trust that we see here in this particular passage. And then 7 through 21, I want to look at the angle of God's trustworthiness, all right? We'll look at God's Abram's trust and God's trustworthiness. And then here's what I think we'll find by the end of this passage, right? What we'll find at the end of this passage is that it is a pivotal scripture for our relationship with God here today. That's what we'll find by the end of this whole entire story, all right? So um, let's wrestle with Abram's trust because I believe that there's something that is really helpful for us at the core of this. Two things that are really helpful for us as we think about our relationship with God. God uses this in Abram's life, but I believe he's also speaking to us. So I'm gonna reread one through six just to refresh our minds, and then we'll dive in. So here's what verse one says. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. That's crazy enough, right? (laughs) Like came to Abram in a vision. Here's what he says. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your reward, your reward will be very great. So he's reissuing the promise here is what's happening in those, that little phrase. But Abram said, verse two, Lord God, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house, Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Verse four, now the word of the Lord came to him This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And then verse six, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. All right, two important things happen in this passage. First, we see that God, or sorry, Abram wrestles with God's promise. That's what we see in verses 1 through 5. We'll get to that in a second. Second, we see Abram trusts God's promise, all right? We need to go in sequential order because they build off of each other, right? So Abram wrestles with God's promise. We see this in verses 1 through 5. And so here's what I think is really important about Abram's wrestle that speaks to our hearts and our lives today. As we look at Abram's wrestle, here's what I want you to see, all right? in Abram's wrestle, we see that there is space for us to be human. (laughs) There's space for us to have limitations. There's space for us to have questions, all right? Let me unpack that for you. I want to show you this in Abram's life, and then I want to come back, and I want to wrestle with it in our life too, because God gives us promises, and I believe there's this idea, this wrestle of when we have questions, is it okay for me to have confusion or perplexity in this life? Or does that mean if I have any questions that I have disbelief? And I think that Abram's life is a great example and model for us of what it looks like to wrestle with these things, all right? So here's what happens with Abram. Like we said, God shows up to Abram in a dream, that is, like we said, just crazy, right? Like God would show up to you in a dream. He would speak to you. And what he comes and he confirms this blessing that Abram gets in Genesis 14. So, what happens in Genesis 14? Abram, in faith, goes and fights a group of kings and he gets his nephew Lot back from these kings. Along with all of his possessions, he goes and fight this big battle. He only has about 318 men that are going to fight this battle up, up against thousands of other armed troops, and he wins. He brings it back. He meets these two kings that come to him, provide him an ultimatum, King Sodom says, hey, you can have all the land, you can have all the possessions, just give me the people. He's essentially saying, hey, have a smaller view of God's promise here. You can have it right now, but you only get it in a limited terms. Or you can take Melchizedek, which is a Christ-like figure that says, hey, God's favor is on you and wait. Wait. God's favor is on you and wait. And God comes to Abram in this dream and he confirms exactly what Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is saying. He's, he's saying, look, God's gonna be your shield and then God's gonna be your blessing. He's gonna bless you. Essentially what he's saying is God's gonna be your protection and he's also gonna be your provision. And God shows up and says, exactly. Exactly what Melchizedek says is exactly gonna be true for your life. But here's what happens with Abram. In the midst of this vision, Abram looks around at his life, and he has questions. He has questions. Here's what he says. He says, Lord God, who can give me, what can you give me since I'm childless? You have given me no offspring, so my slave will be my heir. He looks around at his life, and he looks at what God has promised. I'm going to be your protection. I'm going to be your shield. That usually happens through your offspring that God gives you, and that you're also going to be blessed. You're going to have a great name. You're going to to be a great nation. And Abram looks around and is like, how? How? Like, he has reasonable questions. Look, his wife is past child-rearing years, and she's barren in our human capacity, you hear this promise that comes from God and you have to look around at your life. If you're in Abram's shoes, you have to look around at your life. It's like, God, how is this going to happen? Like barren women that are at the age of my wife don't have kids. So how are you going to do this? Look, I I think you see a great model in Abram when it comes to questions that we have, that we, God is patient with us in our limitedness as human beings, and there's an allowance for questions, all right? God, what you see throughout the Bible, you see this in Jesus. He tells us, hey, come and have faith like a child. Look, what does a child have? A child has a bunch of questions, right? A child has so many questions. We get scattered with questions at our home, constantly overwhelmed with questions. And a good parent, and this is often not me, a good parent often is patient with those questions, right? Like they receive the questions of the child, they answer the questions, because the the kid's just trying to, he's trying to figure it out. Like, what's going on in this world? Why do I have to obey? Like, why all these rules? Why do we have to go to sleep right now? Like, you have all these questions. They're just trying to get their heads around this, right? And God tells us to come to him like a child. And so what does he expect? He expects questions. He expects questions. It's not—and look, I believe— like, you have proof that this isn't disbelief in Abram because what you see with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4— And speaking about this particular event, Paul says that Abram never wavered in his belief. So look, Abram comes with his questions and what we see from the rest of the Bible, it says that his perplexity, his confusion was not disbelief but him being human. And look, The same space that is given for Abram in his life to have questions and to be a limited human being is also allowed for you. Because we get promises from God as well, all right? We have promises from God, and if I am willing to bet, you have had questions and confusion in your own life about these promises that God has made for you. All right, here's a couple of them, all right? So Philippians 1 Six says this, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Great promise. Second promise, Romans eight twenty eight. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Two great promises, right? Now here's the reality for your life and my life. As we look at our life, we've dealt with struggle with sin, haven't we? We've dealt with struggle with sin, like really hard, long struggles with sin. And so you look at a promise like Philippians 1.6 that God's going to bring to completion salvation in your life, and you look at your life and where you're at in the present and how strong your temptations and how strong sin is in your life. You're like, how, God? How, how is this going to come to pass? Because all I can see is Struggle right? All I can see is that I have a mounted debt that is above my eyeballs because I'm addicted to shopping. All I can see is the weight and guilt that I feel because of the lust that is present in my life. And like you're fighting, but you constantly see yourself giving in over and over and over again. And so you step back and you look at your life and you're like, God, how are you going to do this? Like, I'm, I'm trying to hold on, but like, what does it look like for completion here? Because I just can't see it. Then you also look at this promise in Romans chapter 8 that all things are going to work together for your good, and you look at your life, and it just feels like it is littered with hardship. Everything's breaking in your life. You've been backstabbed. People are speaking ill of you like cancer diagnoses pop up, death happens, you look at your life, some of this is just like mounting on top of each other, and all you can see is hardship, and you're like, God, how? How is all of this, how are you using all of this to work it for my good? Look, you are limited. Here's, here's the reality about our God. He understands that you cannot understand his will in your life by looking through the windshield of your life, but only through the rear view mirror of your life. And he understands this and he's patient with you. And we get this, we see this affirmed in God and his response to Abram, but also look, he does this to us as well because what is God's response to Abram here in his questions? He's patient with him. Look, he comes and he assures Abram and then he takes him on a field trip. (laughs) Here's what he says to Abram in the midst of his questions. He says, no, it's not your, this child that is coming is not, it's not going to be an heir that comes from a slave in your line. It's actually going to come from your body, is what he says. And then after this, he takes Abram and he takes him out under the stars. And what does he do? He says, look at the stars. Look up, he takes him on a field trip. Look up, look at all the stars. Look, all of these stars, your offspring is gonna be greater and more numerous than all the stars in the sky. He doesn't tell him how he's gonna do it, but he assures him, no, it's coming from your own body. And he takes him on a field trip to look at all the stars. And look, we need to put our theology to practice here. Because here's the reality about God God never changes. God never changes. So the way that he responds to Abram, the same way he responds to us. What does he do? He assures you in your questions and then he takes you on a field trip, all right? You get assurance by the witness of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter eight, you get this promise from God that he's gonna work all things to your good. A couple of verses before that, what does it say? You get the testimony and the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life. Then whenever you have questions and you have hardships and you have struggles, what the Bible tells us is that the testimony of the Holy Spirit comes along with your soul and says that you are a child of God. He says you're a child of God. He affirms through the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you that he is doing a good work in you and he's going to bring it to completion. That's the promise of the holy spirit the work and the ministry of the holy spirit in your life but look god also gives you the stars he gives you the stars he takes abram underneath the stars to look up hey this is how numerous your offspring is going to be look you get the stars too what does hebrews chapter 12 say that you're surrounded by such a great crowd of cloud of witnesses what is that referring to it's referring to the hall of faith in hebrews chapter 11 It's the stars that were promised to Abraham. God tells you to go to the scriptures and he's like, look at the stars. Look at all the people. Look at all the people that have expressed the faith of Abraham that you see in their own life. All the way from Noah, all the way to the very ends. The nameless people that have been in your life. The people that the world cannot count worthy In this world, all of these people look at all the stars, people that have expressed the faith. Look, you have the stars here that are a witness to you, the witness of the saints. So, look, this is a beautiful picture for us. Abram wrestles, you and I wrestle, and we can see that God gives us space to be limited human beings and to bring our questions because what kind of faith does He require of us? That of a child. And he meets us exactly the same way that he meets Abram, with patience and understanding. So look, this is great news for us, but it's only great news for us in light of Abram's belief. All right? It's only good news for us. It's only helpful to us if we understand that belief truly is necessary And that's what we see in verse six is Abram's belief in God's promise. So here's what it says. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. All right, this is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. One of the most important verses in all the Bible. The apostle Paul relates it to our salvation in Romans chapter four, like we referenced earlier. Okay, here's the key to this entire verse. The key to this entire verse is the object of your faith. Here's what faith or this belief means. It means trust and reliance, all right? Now, here's what we need to understand about our life, and this is, we also see this in Abram's life too. We are prone towards self-reliance, all right? The temptation for Abram here in this passage, you see him bring up the heir Eliezer of Damascus, the slave that's in his home. This is at the outskirts of the territory that he's just gone to relieve Lot from his being captured by the kings. And so, Abram is bringing this other person that could be set up as the heir in his home and it's the alternative to belief that God is going to bring about his promise in Abram's life and the offspring and look it's our tendency to also have a separate option too. It is the The way that our hearts are prone because of sin, all right? So here's a few examples, all right? A few isms for you, all right? So the first one is moralism, all right? This is self-improvement that precedes acceptance, all right? So here's, here's what it says. If I clean myself up, then I'll be accepted. If I clean myself up, then God has to accept me. And so the problem with this idea is that we get some measure of success in it, don't we? Like if we if our life is a mess, we can really work hard pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we can really bring some adjustments to our life. We can get a coach, we can get coaching in our life. We can have a mentor that helps us walk through it. We can go to a counselor that helps us think through and process and get a way forward. And then here's the justification that happens for us whenever we see some measure of improvement in my life. I was a mess, but look how much I've grown. And so we can have a tendency of self-reliance. Look how much I have improved myself. God has to accept me. The second one is legalism. This is obedience that precedes acceptance, all right? And here's what it says. If I follow the rules, then God has to accept me, all right? Now, here's the reality for a lot of us, okay? A lot of us have lived pretty decent lives. We've lived, we've been law-abiding citizens. Some of us are great. If you give us a list of rules, we can follow it to a T, we can, cross the I, we can dot the I's, we can cross the T's, and we can move forward. And it's like, look how shiny, clean my life is. And here's the justification. I am responsible, and you can count on me, and so God will want me. And then the last one is a made-up word that I made. Performancism, all right? And here's what performancism is. It's success precedes acceptance. And here's what performancism says. It says, if I accomplish enough, then I'll be accepted. And here's the reality many of us are rather gifted individuals, right? Some of you are going to great colleges, you're doing well, you have a bright future ahead of you. Some of you have landed your dream job and you're excelling and you're growing. Some of you have married well, right? And you're reaping off the benefits of it, but you look at it and you're like, look how successful our family is. Look how many kids we have. Look at all the things that we have. And here's what justification of performances, performanceism says. You can't turn me down because I'm too great of an asset. And this is what our hearts are prone towards. Self-reliance. Self-reliance. We have another option in our pocket, and it's the one we are prone to. But we have to see in Romans, or in this verse 6 is that Abram's object of his faith is not his moralism. It's not his legalism, and it's not his performancism. It is the Lord. Here's what it says. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him, speaking of God, as righteousness, as right standing with God. Here's what Charles Spurgeon, an old preacher, says. To believe is to give up self-reliance and to rely upon the Lord Jesus. All right? So here's a question that maybe you've had in your walk with Jesus as you read throughout the Bible, you read the Old Testament. It's like, hey, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Well, the answer to that question is the same way as the New Testament, the same way of the New Testament. What we see in the Old Testament is people believe God would keep his promise to send a Messiah who would ultimately save them. And in the New Testament, we believe that God has kept this promise by sending Jesus. So what happens in the Old Testament is the Old Testament people are looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise, what we are doing is we're looking backward and we're saying Jesus is the fulfillment to that promise. But look, the answer to that question is the same, is Jesus. It's not your work, but his work. And he's the object of our faith. And so look, For us to be, yes, God has space for us to be limited human beings and we can come to him in childlike faith and bring our questions, but ultimately there has to be faith. But faith is not in your work, but in the work of Jesus. And we see this in Abram, and it's the, one of the most important verses in all of the Bible because Paul points back to it, other writers in the New Testament point back to this and say, look, even Abraham didn't trust in his own work. The sign of this covenant that God is making with Abraham is circumcision. It doesn't come for two more chapters. That would be the work. But it, Paul says, Abram believes all this before he even gets the sign, meaning before the work could even happen, he's trusted that God's going to come through in his promises. And the same is true for us. Don't trust in your work, but trust in the work of Christ. So ultimately, Abram trusts. God gives him this big, unique beautiful promise. I'm gonna make you a great name. I'm gonna give you a great name. I'm gonna give you promised land. I'm gonna give you a great nation. And Abram refuses to trust in man-made things and he trusts in the work that God is gonna do on his behalf. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, here's here's the question we have to ask though. Is Abram a fool? (laughs) Are we fools? Because look, if we trust in God, What we have to have in, in the object of our faith is someone that is trustworthy, right? The core of the promise, what really resides at the center of it is, can we trust it? And what we see that unfolds in verses 7 through 21 is God's trustworthiness. All right. So instead of reading the whole entire part uh, passage I'm going to read it in parts. And here's what we see, here's what is makes somebody or here's why we end up trusting someone, all right? Three things, three Cs. Wouldn't be a preacher if I didn't have some alliteration, right? First is confidence, second is clarity, and the third is commitment, right? You need all three of these in order to trust somebody. You need confidence, you need clarity, and you need commitment and look we see all three of them in God in verses seven through 21. So we see God's confidence or our confidence in God in verse seven. Here's what it says. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Look, God is not shy about who he is or what he's going to do in this verse. Do you see that? What immediately after this, after, he, after Abram's belief, God says to him, I am the Lord. There is no, like, way of trying to weave your way out of this. Oh, I didn't, like, I didn't say that it was going to be me. Like, I, no, God's laying his name down on the line. He's, this is me. I am the Lord, the one that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And what does he say he's going to do? To give you this land to possess. He makes no druthers about what's going to happen here, all right? And so, look, this is something we long for in people. We long for this in people. We long to be able to be uh, confident in somebody. Not arrogant, but confident, right? We trust people and we follow people who are confident. They must possess character as well as capability, right? They need character and capability. And look, these people are really hard to find. Like, Finding leaders like this is why our presidencies and things are so a wreck right now, right? Like we are always looking for someone that we can be confident in. Someone that we can look at and their character is impeccable and they also have the capability to lead. Look, this there's a, a one of my heroes in the faith was Tim Keller, a pastor in New York. And he recently passed away. And what happened on social media is proof to all that I'm trying to say here, right? Because people are so saddened by his loss. Why are they saddened by this loss of this pastor in New York City? It's because of the confidence that people could have in him, all right? So look, he was a man of character. What followed after his death on social media, is everyone came to uh, speak how high of his character was. Here's what they would say about this Tim Keller. They would say he was the exact same person in private as he was in public. Look, this guy had a huge platform, probably one of the most recognized pastors in our lifetime, probably in the last hundred years. This guy had a major platform and the people that were closest to him in his life said, look, everything that you saw about him in public, he was the exact, if not better in private. Impeccable character. But then he was very capable. Look, he went and planted a church in a city that people at the time and point that he went to plant in the 80s said it couldn't be done, right? The whole entire city was wrecked with crime, I mean, if people say that St. Louis is bad with crime, then look at the 80s in New York City. It was way worse. And he goes into New York City, and what does he do in a post-Christian uh, community? He goes and plants a church by being faithful to the truth of God's Word. He never, not once, turned away from the truth of what we see in the Scriptures. He was a faithful preacher of God's Word, and what we saw was a beautiful church that's given a lifetime of faithfulness in that city and beyond And so people, whenever he passed away, man, the reason why they're saddened is because it's so hard to find somebody like this that we can be confident in. We're constantly looking, and whenever we lose one, we're really sad. But here's the good news, all right? Here's the good news. Tim Keller wasn't perfect, right? He he was a man that wrestled with sin, but what we see is the faithful witness of the Bible as well as the saints that we can be confident in God that he is a person of character and he is capable, all right, we can see this about God. It's not just in this verse uh, seven that we see in our story here. Maybe the best uh, example of all this is in Hebrews six thirteen, speaking about this story. Here's what it says. For when God made a promise to Abram, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. Can you wrap your head around that? Like here's what God is basically saying about himself and then the writer of Hebrews is affirming it. He's saying, God is so much greater than anything that this world has to offer. Any other leader, any world possession, any gift, any ability, God is so much greater than all of it that whenever he's looking at Abram, the only person that he can swear by because he is so great is himself. And the writer of Hebrews says, this is good. God is basically saying, I have such high character and I have such high ability and then the writer of uh, Hebrews is saying that he affirms all of this that it is good that he swears by himself what the writer of Hebrews is saying be confident in this God in the same way that he brought about the promise in Abraham's life is the same way he's going to bring about the promises that he's made to you in your life God is confident you can be confident in this God. That he's going to follow through with his promises. This is what we see in verse 7, but it doesn't stop there. We see that God is trustworthy because he also possesses clarity. We see this in verses 8 through 16. So let me kind of shorten here so I don't read a ton, all right? So Abram is perplexed again in verse 8. We see him come to God. Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He comes to God with his questions again, and then God gives him some instructions. We'll come back to those instructions in a little bit, and we get to verse 13 through 16. And what we see is God is crystal clear about how he's gonna bring about this promise in Abram's life. Here's what verse 13 says. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain clarity, right? Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and uh, oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So I once heard a pastor say that the leader in any room is the person that has clarity. And what we are prone to do is we're prone to follow people that have clarity, they know where they are going. All right. I learned this in trying to help start this church. Right? So what you when you're going and you're starting a church, they have what's called a church planting prospectus. All right? And so a church planting prospectus is basically like you're trying to put on paper what the vision of the church is, where you're trying to go, and how you're going to reach it, and all the resources that you need in order to do it. And so what they say whenever you're going to like a, a church board and you're about to sit down with them and present all of these opportunities so they will resource your church until it can become a self sustaining church is you need a plot factor you need a plot factor you need to have a church planting prospectus which is basically like a business plan that can be laid before these people that they can flip through and they can have confidence because you have clarity about where you're going now there's limitedness to that because we are human beings but what we see about God is that he has immense clarity Because everything that he tells Abram here about what's going to happen comes to fruition, right? We get the ability to look backwards and see all that God has done. Look, there's literally an entire book of the Bible that expounds on this very part of the passage. The book of Exodus. (laughs) Where God does exactly to the T everything that is said here to Abram. Abram lives a long life. God's people do go into captivity in Egypt. They are oppressed. God allows the wickedness and sin to be built up and then he judges them and then they leave by taking all of their possessions. They plunder them and then they go into the great promised land. We get a whole entire book on this. And so what do we see about God? He has immense clarity. Everything that he says is gonna come true does. He's a person that you can follow. He knows exactly where things are going and so he's trustworthy. So we see confidence, we see clarity, and finally we see commitment in verses seventeen through twenty-one. So verse nine, um, he gave God gave Abram some instructions. Here's what he instructed Abram to do. He said, "Go take some animals." cut them in half, and then lay the pieces opposite each other. And so Abram goes and he does that. And then we get verse 17, which says this. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brooks of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. Okay, what's going on here? All right. Let me explain so we can get a good mental picture because what we see is an incredible commitment that God makes here, all right? So what we see happening is um, Abram is in this dream again and uh, what happens is he's terrified by what happens, right? Um, And so we see there's this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch. Both of these represent God, all right? So here's what's happening. The smoking fire pot is the heat of God's holiness, the heat of God's holiness, his purity. He is so hot he is because his purity is so good that it is the smoking pot that uh, is representing his holiness here. You get another sense of this, another story that you can look at is Isaiah chapter 6, right? Isaiah chapter 6, God's holiness, there's this uh, firing, smoking pot um, that's going on there. Don't mean like the bad kind of pot, but like a pot with like a, a charcoal in it, right? And then you also get the flaming torch, which is the light of God. God's face. It's the light of God's face. Another story for you to look at is the burning bush. What happens whenever Moses comes up to the burning bush? It's not being consumed. The light is so immense that Moses can't look at it. Both of these things are depicting who God is. And then what happens? This f- smoking fire pot and flaming torch, they pass between the divided animals. And this is where we get the word covenant here. All right. The word covenant literally means to cut. All right to cut. And so what we see is these animals that are cut in two, and they're uh, placed on opposite ends of one another. God makes a covenant with Abram here. But who goes through the animals? Who walks through the animals? We see God does. All right. So this was a common practice at this point in time between a king and a servant. But usually who went through the line was the servant. And so whenever they went through the line, it was a river of blood. All right? So you have the river of blood. You have these animals that are cut in half. And as this person walks through, the blood is picked up by the robe. And it serves as a sign of the covenant that's about to be made. And it is the thing that the king holds the servant to that promise. But what happens here? The king is the one that goes through. The king is the one that goes through. All right? And so God takes ownership for his part of the bargain. But look, Abram doesn't go through, not once, not just a little bit, not just a step. God is the only one that goes through the river of blood. So here's what's happening. God is saying, if I don't follow through with my promise, may I be like these animals. I'm sacrificed, I'm put to death, and I'm separated. May my blood be spilt. But look, he also takes the position of Abram. He says, if you don't follow through with your side of the promise, then may I be like these dead animals too. He takes both sides of the partnership, he takes full responsibility. Do you see the commitment that God is making here? God is saying, I'm going to take on and I'm going to follow through with my promises and when you don't follow through with your promises, I'm going to take the what you deserve because you deserve this death of these animals, but I'm going to stand in your place. And what do we see throughout the unfolding of the Bible that God is faithful, right? He holds to his end of the bargain. He is faithful. We look at this towards, as we look at Jesus, he's faithful in sending the Messiah. We see this in Abram's life too. He's faithful to give him the land. He's faithful to give him a family and a great nation. We see a great name. Abram is literally brought up throughout all of scripture. He gets all of this. God has kept his promise, but he has kept the promise beyond what Abram could even imagine, and that the Messiah comes from him. And then what does God do? He stands in your and my place, and Abram's place too, and he takes what we deserve because we haven't been faithful to the promise. We've wavered in disbelief. And what does God do? Through Jesus, he goes in our place and we see Jesus, the perfect, spotless lamb of God that's laid down on your behalf. He lays down his life to die. What does he do? He walks through the river of judgment. And what is the blood? It is his blood. And it's spilled out for you. Y'all, God is trustworthy. Trustworthy amen? God is trustworthy. Is Abram a fool? Are we a fool for believing in the object of our faith that the Lord is the one that we trust in his work? Absolutely not. If you want to place your faith in something that has the utmost certainty in this life and all of eternity, it is the object of your faith that is Jesus and nothing that you can do. That's what this whole entire passage is telling us. So look, God's made incredible promises to you. We've rehearsed some of them here. Look, the only way those come to fulfillment is if your faith remains in the object of your faith, which is Jesus. The only way. Which means that there's no responsibility on the works that you bring to the table, but all of the works that he brought to the table. And he graciously gives you everything that he deserved. Oh my gosh, how trustworthy is our God? So here's where I want to land, all right? I just want to take that word trustworthy and I want to split it in two, all right? Here's how I want us to respond. All right? Here's how I believe God's invitation for us to respond is. One, he's worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy of your worship, You know what worship is? That all of your life is built towards him and you give him your all. And he is worthy of it. He is worthy of everything that you have and more. He is worthy of your faith. He is worthy of your trust because he has come through and he's been faithful in everything that he has ever promised. He's faithful He's worthy of your praise. So our response should be like, God, thank you. Thank you. Like when we stand here and sing in a little bit, like the voice should match what is going on in your soul. The words that are coming off of your lips should literally be the wellspring of your entire soul. That you are... Outwardly expressing and showing, God, you are worthy of my praise because of the lyrics that we're about to sing, which are always pointed towards this Jesus. He's worthy of your praise. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your entire life to declare him as Lord, which leads us to trust. And so look, God understands all he's asking for is a faith like a child, which means that he understands that we are limited human beings. So you can bring him your perplexity. You can bring him your confusion. And he's not going to meet you with anger or bewilderment. He's going to meet you with patience and understanding. But look, we have to be like Abram. We have to be like Abram. God, not my trust, not my self-reliance, but everything that Jesus has done for me. And so here's what we, here, like, here's the best way I can try to put all of this, all right? So my kids love to wrestle with me. <laughs> they love to wrestle. Four boys, all 10 and under, lots of energy in our house. They love for me to throw them on the couch, right? They just love for me to manhandle them. Like, dad, would you throw me on the couch? Would you throw me across the room? Would you flip me upside down? We do all of these things. And so, whenever I do it on the couch, like when I do all these things and I throw them on the couch or I flip them over on the couch, we have this one thing. uh, The shepherd is small enough to where I can still do this with him. So, I'll lay just prostrate on the entire couch and I'll take him by his ankles and I'll just flip him over, right? And every single time, here's what he does daddy, do it again. Daddy, do it again. Would you flip me over again? Would you throw me around the room again? You do it? They love it because they experience my love in the midst of the wrestle, right? And so here's what we need to do. Here's God's invitation. He is trustworthy. And so when we look back on the stars, the faith that happens, the assurance, the Holy Spirit, and everything that God has remained faithful to throughout all the scriptures, we need to be like my kids and say, God, do it again. Would you do it again? God, would you do it again? God, you've been so faithful. I can look throughout all of Hebrews chapter 11. I can see all the ways that you've been faithful. You kept your promises. God, you've done it to so many people. I am overwhelmed with my sin. I'm overwhelmed with struggle and hardship. I don't know how it's going to happen, but God, would you do it again? Would you be faithful again? In the midst of my struggle and my confusion and my perplexity, God, would you do it again? And look, he doesn't get tired of the question. My arms wear out as I flip over my boys, but God never tires in you bringing that question to him. Daddy, would you do it again? Look, he's trustworthy. We see Abram trusts, it's not in the midst of a lack of questions, but it's with questions. But in the midst of it, he trusts the promise of God. He trusts in the object of Jesus as the source of his faith. And then we see all throughout this whole entire chapter that God is trustworthy. And we see the rest of the Bible that says God is trustworthy and you can trust him too. Let's pray.